my first film then. Um, I'm going to start that again without the stupid voice. I'll just do I the, think you should lean into it. Just do, just the, whole do the whole film yeah. in that. Yeah. H- whole thing in like the 1930s uh, radio episode. <laughs> this week on the podcast nobody asked for, we have Fencing. <laughs> you guys are making a podcast. for this how do we start we usually start by saying um welcome to the podcast nobody asked for um with you ian harry's and you graham jones yeah that works that does work yeah this week nobody has asked us to talk about we should we um, should we should we should try and talk a bit more upbeat rather than keep this bit going on longer okay fair enough so this week we're going to be talking about this week we're going with another kind of lockdown-themed discussion topic. Last week, we obviously went with claustrophobic movies because of not being able to go anywhere during lockdown too. This and, week, and, our, and our deep love of spelunking. Ah, uh, you had to get... That's twice in this episode. Yeah, um, but you so know... Well done, you. I, I had to. Hopefully, you guys discovered the spelunking supercut we hid at the end of last week's episode. Uh, a lot of... Time and love went into that, and I'm still not 100% sure why we did it. No. Maybe it is because, yeah, it just felt like the walls were closing in around us. <laughs> but on a more positive note, this yes. week we've decided to talk about films people can watch to improve a bad day. So obviously with lockdown and the world just being very weird, I th- we thought it would be good to talk through more kind of upbeat and feel-good movies instead of yeah. Monsters in Caves. Spread positivity, things that you want to watch to feel good, and yeah, just some films that for the hour and 30 minutes, two hours that they're on, you can kind of get away from the world <laughs> as it is in its current state, and yeah, just just feel a bit better about things um, for, for a variety of reasons. So yeah, hopefully, it, if nothing else, gives you a few, um, a f- few ideas for some movies to to stick on if lockdown is being particularly shit today or any other day for the however many countless days we're we're stuck in it or just watch these films anyway because they're all brilliant yes there is that too <laughs> so before we get into our top three movies to improve a bad day it's my turn to talk about a movie recommendation that nobody asked for so with our choices today uh, and we kind of touched on this in the episode They are very personal choices. They're films that we would watch on a bad day. So we had a lot of choices for kind of movie recommendations. So I think the film which was fourth on both of our lists was 2017's Paddington 2. Paddington 2 generally tops any list that you would Google asking for feel-good movies. It is painfully optimistic and positive. It's all about being yourself, loving your family, loving your friends, and doing everything you can to help people. It's just a cute film that stars a bear. And Hugh Grant in his best acting turn ever. And, uh, Brendan Gleeson's incredible in it as well. Like The whole the whole film is just... It, it is fucking brilliant. And... Yeah, it, it easily could have made kind of any of the lists today, but spoilers, it didn't, which is why we're talking about it now. Sometimes you, you know, Paddington 2 is a very stereotypical feel-good movie. Other things I feel that can help improve kind of mental health and everything in general 
is just kind of getting outside and enjoying the sun. So that's why for our second movie recommendation, we're going to go with Ariaster's Midsummer, which is set in kind of, if you ignore the plot, the creepiness, the tension, everything that's happening, the culty undertones, the beginning of the film, the end of the film, part of the middle of the film, and kind of the entire third act. It all takes place in beautiful sunlight, and you get to see really kind of like quaint little Scandinavian uh, houses. Um, also, have it on mute because the music's very tense. <laughs> and- yeah, yeah, definitely on mute. There's the whole the the wailing sex song yeah um, probably, probably is not gonna necessarily make you feel yeah. great but um i got really confused uh, people like to sleep to whale song and when i put that on for them like they just kicked me out of the house i didn't live there though so that might be why uh, i tried to lead into that not sure if we went too far <laughs> i mean the, the you went too far when you did it ian yeah that's fair watch midsummer realize you're having a shit day put one of these six films on i i think i might have done that when we saw midsummer <laughs> <laughs> it, it was definitely a case of i'm gonna go home and watch one of these so without further ado these are the podcast nobody asks for's top films to improve a bad day music graham paint me a word picture uh okay my first choice this week for a movie to watch to improve your bad day is 2014's chef nice a film I think I first watched on a transatlantic flight. Oh, really? Yeah. I watched it on a plane for the first time as well. Look I at got, us. Oh, yeah. I got <laughs> stupidly over-emotional at it. Yeah, I was just about to say, like, it's a known thing, right? Is that you yeah. tend to be more emotional at high altitude or something? I mean, I cried at end of watch on a I, plane. I, I don't know if it's... <laughs> I like to think it's high altitude, but... Part of mine was definitely also lack of sleep. Yeah, so yeah, I, I was, suppose there is that. I was borderline delirious and <laughs> at 36,000 feet, and I was an emotional wreck, and I couldn't explain to anyone why. <laughs> it's, you know, people would be watching me, like, quasi-bawling my eyes out, and then you look to the screen, and it's just a fucking molten lava Cubano. cake. <laughs> yeah. Man, that, that boy really likes his sandwiches. Just It was just the crunch as he, as he cut the... <gasps> uh... Great, we're gonna get going again. <laughs> it's the grilled the grilled cheese crunch. Oh. But yeah, so Chef, um, yeah, it came out in 2014. It's kind of one of those movies that is just I don't want to say nothing happens because stuff does happen, but it also kind of feels like you're just along for the ride. It follows John Favreau, who is um he's the head chef at this fancy LA restaurant. I thought I thought he was the director of Iron Man. He ah! he is. He's oh. also the director of Iron Man. God. And Starting this, is, this is the first, because I think Robert Downey Jr. was involved in this to some degree, and it's their first collaboration that they did that wasn't an Iron Man film. So he must be happy. Hey, nice. That was, <laughs> nice. That was so bad, I nearly missed it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, anyway, he's a head chef at a fancy restaurant, but he's really kind of, you can see he's like in a bit of a creative slump. He's being stifled and there's this fancy food blogger coming into the restaurant and he's asked to cook for him. He wants to kind of get all creative, do a fun, interesting menu. The guy who owns the restaurant, which is Dustin Hoffman, I believe. Yes. Um wants him to do the classics because he wants to get a good review for for like the classic food. So he kind of falls in line, does that, ends up getting a terrible review from the food blogger. 
he loses it. He and quits. The food, the food blog is a guy who once fought a giant reptile in something. I can't remember if it was a snake, a crocodile, another snake, or what. I'm but, assuming you mean in a different film rather than <laughs> that's his backstory and fairly, chef. <laughs> fairly sure it's not a shared universe, but which on half you just don't know. This is true. This is very true. So yeah, he he kind of thinks, fuck it, I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, I want to do what I want. I want to do it how I want. And obviously what you do when you quit your job at a high paying fancy restaurant is go and buy a battered up old food truck and drive across the country selling Cubanos and, and other great uh, street foods. There's just so much about it that just makes you feel good. I think it's it's quite a it's quite a funny film. It's not an out and out comedy, but there are definitely funny parts in it. But it is really it, difficult to nail down, isn't it? Yeah, and like I say it kind I, of is it a road trip movie, sort of? Yeah, maybe? It's, it's funny, but it's not a comedy. It's serious, but it's not a drama. Yeah. It's a, it's a film about family, but we're not necessarily a family movie. Well, yeah, and it's yeah, it's kind of like a sort of a romance. It's got romance in it as well, but also in a kind of weird roundabout way. But yeah, it kind of, the movie really just follows him kind of going across the country, serving food, discovering food. There's a great scene where they get beignets in New Orleans and he shares that with his son as well. So his son comes along for the ride, who he's kind of had a bit of a disconnect with throughout his life as a head chef. Yeah, it kind of just brings that all together. It's it's a movie about... I guess really sort of following your dreams and being authentic to yourself. And and making sandwiches. And making sandwiches. There's this whole aspect of sort of connecting and reconnecting with the people that you love. However, I don't agree with remarrying your ex-wife, even if she is Sofia Gavagera. Don't do that. Bad move, John. The music in it's great. I think there's a lot of feel-good tracks on there. Like you said, food. Food makes everyone feel good, especially when it's like as well depicted as it is in this film. I think that's one thing that, you know, this film's really well renowned for is that it's a film about food that really got food right. Well, he, he did a lot of training, right? Yeah. So Roy Roy Choi, the guy who owns the, the Kogi food truck and kind of started this gourmet street food craze in LA was the, um, he trained him ahead of the show and was kind of a consultant on the show sorry the film he was a consultant on the film and he also only agreed to do the training if John Favreau made sure that in the film he was properly portraying what it was like to be a chef um, and I think that definitely comes through and there's you know there's some things some really great shots of some of the food like with the sandwich press and the cubanos and even the the crunch with the grilled cheese that he makes and the pasta on the like meat fork mm-hmm. as well. Like there's there's so much about it that's just you just, know. just keep keep going, man. Keep going. I'm really finished. <laughs> just tell me how they melt that cheese. <laughs> I mean, I'm lactose intolerant, and I I want to eat that that grilled cheese sandwich. But yeah, I think just everything about it is it's such a wholesome film. Even even to the point where he kind of gets his critics back on side at the end of it. But yeah, it's just it just makes me really happy and absolutely something that i'd put on if i was having a bit of a shitty day because um good food good music good actors great story it's as i said it's it's really about sort of bringing together the people that mean a lot to you and support you and yeah it's it's a good one i mean what what helps for a film on a bad day is at no point does it seem like he is ever not going to succeed and get his way 
It's, no. like, it's, <laughs> it's like watching Ballers or a Liam Neeson action movie. There is no point in it. You think, oh, you know what? He is going to really have to struggle here. It's just, it just shows the, the benefits of following your heart and sandwiches. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a few bits with his, with his son where he's like, there's a little bit of a struggle there where he's trying to reconnect and stuff. But if, yeah, you're right. Not, not that I have kids, but if I could make a sandwich as good as John Favre does, I wouldn't care what my kids think about me. <laughs> really. Uh, the TV show's really good as well. It's it's yeah. um it's a completely non-fiction. It's just they clearly enjoyed I think that's a part of it as well, is everyone involved in the film clearly loves that they're involved in the film. And that's yeah, kind of definitely. very contagious. And they loved it so much they then basically made a cooking show, which doesn't tell you really how to cook anything. It's just them cooking stuff on screen. <laughs> There's that bit when they show the ingredients for about five seconds in where they're kind of all exploded and you yeah. can kind of see like three things that go into the re- the dish that you're about to see them cook. That show changed how I made uh, pasta sauce, true story. So it turns out boiling mushroom in water for like 20 minutes and then using that water in a tomato sauce is a uh, chef kiss. Nice. Like that. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I did get very emotional the first time I watched this film. Equally emotional when you made the pork from it as well, right? Oh god, that was that was amazing. <laughs> I um yeah, no, the film did make me I, I think that really started my kind of cooking renaissance journey. Yeah. <laughs> That's when it was, oh shit, you can actually because I, I never used to care about things like presentation or anything like that, because it's all about, you know, the flavor and everything. But it really shows what good, you know, because you could taste the food that's on the screen, which is really, oh, yeah. really wanky to say, but it's true. But even with like, I don't keep mentioning it, but like even when you hear the crunch when he, he cuts the sandwich, like even that coming through on it is just like, I need this food in my face right now. Have, have you done what I, a lot of people have done and by a lot of people? I, so this is one of those things where <laughs> I've done this and I'm hoping other people have so I don't feel so much of a freak, but I definitely searched how much it would cost to buy a food truck i haven't no but i i definitely now want to yeah turns out i, I could like i couldn't then afford to do anything else with the rest of my life but i could get one. <laughs> i'd have to live well, in it to be fair as as one thing this movie shows is you don't need a big marketing budget you just need twitter and that one second a day app yeah <laughs> which uh i want to say skyrocketed that but i use it that's really it <laughs> so basically this movie has changed the way you cook. You've cooked things from it, and you've used the technology from it as well. Mm-hmm. I'm a very nice. impressionable young man. <laughs> the problem, Especially like, when you're in the air. I've, I've found a problem with this episode already, in that I think after every discussion we have, I could happily just stop talking and go and rewatch the film. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't quite have that when it came to uh, spelunking. <laughs> well actually you say that i went and watched the descent after the after our spelunking chat and fuck that shit uh-huh. <laughs> no I, I i i think i watched it on the back so you said it was 2014 2014 yeah it might have been when i was on the way back from australia so I, i'm talking like hungover and 24 hours without sleep <laughs> i can't remember i think i maybe watched it when i flew to new york one way i think when i was going but yeah such a good film. Though I never, I'm never 100 percent sure how to pronounce his name. Is it Favre or is it Favre? Was it? I thought it was F- Favre. 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 John Favreau. That's how I pronounce it. John. I'll just call him John. I'll pretend we're mates. Big Jay Z. 
my first film then, which for me is bordering on like the quintessential feel good, bad day kind of movie, uh, is a film that involves, so see if this takes your interest. So it involves fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, and miracles. And that is The Princess Bride. Wonderful. Not to be confused with The Princess Diaries, which is a very different film starring Anne Hathaway. So The Princess Bride is an actor that I have, since our discussions on him a few weeks ago, I have Googled the pronunciation of his surname. (laughs) That is Carrie Elwes. So really, Harry, is that how it's actually said? Elwes, yeah, it's Elwes. <laughs> um, I've been pronouncing it Yules for the vast majority of my life. It stars uh, Carrie Elwes and fuck, forgot her name. Let's do that again, shall we? Because the problem is, I always go to say her character name from House of Cards. You mean Robin Wright? So it stars Carrie Elwes, uh, Robin Wright, uh, Chris Sarandon's in there, uh, Mandy Patinkin, which is just. An amazing name to say. And <laughs> Andre the Giant. Obviously, you can't leave out Andre the Giant. Yeah, I mean, all seven foot four of Andre the Giant, which I still never fully appreciated just how big he is, because obviously when he was wrestling, he was next. It's like you have it with uh, athletes sometimes. You don't realize how freakishly big people are when they're standing next to other freakishly big people. Yeah. But when he's standing next to... Wallace Shawn, who's five foot one. It's, I mean, um, the clue. I'm I'm just going to throw it out there and say the clue is kind of in the name. Uh, fair, fair. Um, <laughs> but seven foot. Like I can't quite comprehend seven foot four. Like there's. No. Have, have you seen? There's a photo of him holding a can of beer. Right. And it it looks like. Um, remember, you used to get in like Woolworths, like the half cans of beer. <laughs> yeah. It looks like someone holding one of those. Like he's comically big. But he's he's also really funny. So kind of the basic plot, even though it's one of those stories that is kind of, it's both taking the piss a little bit and it's been referenced so much. I think everyone knows it, even if they haven't watched it. The story is a kid's home from sick. Uh, home from sick? A kid <laughs> is home from school, sick, and his granddad is reading him a book. And yeah. the book he's reading is The Princess Bride. So you're, the, the framing device is them reading a fairy tale. Uh, that same framing device was used in, they did a PG version of Deadpool 2. Oh, it's so good. And they got the actor back who played the kid. So I think yep. Fred Savage. And the idea He's is reading Deadpool's- reading to Deadpool, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or Deadpool's reading to him. Yeah. So it's a, it's a fairy tale. It's a story of, like I said, kind of true love. So you have Buttercup and Wesley. They're very much in love because they're around each other. That seems to be the basic thing. Because uh, he- she doesn't speak to him, apart from to be a bitch. That's plot. And he only says, as you wish. And that's enough, apparently. Um, he then goes off to seek his fortune and gets killed by a pirate. She then gets engaged to Prince Humperdinck, which, again, this is made. This is a film with just incredible names the, the entire way through. It, it's a difficult... It's a difficult, the actual kind of fairy tale story is difficult to explain because it is really generic, but that's part of its kind of charm is that it's knowingly over the top and a bit silly. Like, you know yeah. exactly really what's going to happen. You know kind of what the broad strokes would be. But also, it's such an iconic film. I don't know if I think that because I knew of it for so long. Yeah, they get reunited. It is all just uh, Carrie Elwes. Trying to save Buttercup 
from an awful marriage with a prince who's trying to kill her in a big conspiracy to set up war with a neighboring kingdom because all good fairy tales need that. It's stupidly funny. It was very ahead of its time because at one point, Wesley says, I think everybody will be wearing them in the future when asked about his mask. <laughs> and it's, you thought about that one, didn't you? Oh, yeah. It's just a perfect mix of wit and sarcasm. It's very... I wonder why you like it. Yeah. No, yeah. But it, <laughs> it, it feels very... British. If you told me it was written by, you know, like Stephen Fry or, you know, like the Black Adder team had something to do with it or the Monty Python guys, I would believe you because it is it is very, very dry the whole way through. And it kind of walks that fine line between parody and just being a good example of what it's kind of lightly poking fun at. Mm -hmm. So it was based on a book and Interestingly, so the book was written by William Goldman, and William Goldman was a screenwriter who'd written Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, so he was kind of a big deal. He then wrote the screenplay for The Princess Bride. Okay. So I can't think of many people that have adapted their own book for the screen. Room, like what we spoke about last week, was. Really? Yep. She, she wrote the screenplay after she wrote the book, then she wrote the screenplay. I mean, it's the only one I know of, and I only know of it because I researched Room last week. <laughs> yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> um, so the book is a lot more satirical when it comes to fairy tales and what those stories mean and that does kind of seep into the film and it's just a fun film is the book so one, one i knew it was i've seen the book a few times in like waterstones and stuff and i've always wondered does the book follow the film in the sense that so obviously in the film he reads the story of the princess bride is he reading the book or does the book start with also him reading The Princess Bride? Is it a book within a book? So the, the framing device in the book is that in broad strokes, the Princess Bride book yeah. is the William Goldman trying to abridge this other story from the Kingdom of Florin. Right. So because he apparently liked the story, but it was really dry. So he kind of cut out all the boring bits and things like that. So you have like author notes in the book. Yeah. So that's how they get kind of like that third person kind of narration, the out of the story narration is that he's picking apart this story and trying to assemble it into a better way. Right. So basically like Gilliam trying to do Don Quixote. Kind, kind, yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Um, and the way he's done it, is uh, so William Goldman's done it as if it was a piece of not like the book he's basing it on is non-fiction. So these are right in the book universe. They're based on events that actually happened in a place that actually happened, and like you can go and visit the Cliffs of Insanity and the Fire Swamp and things like that. Yeah, it's it's not like I mean it's a story. It's a fairy tale about true love, which is also witty, sarcastic, and self-referential the whole way through. I don't. I would happily and. Uh, <laughs> To repeat a line which I'm going to say at least three times, I would watch this <laughs> twice in a day. Like I, I, I think it, it's so kind of it's easygoing while being exciting. It's just funny. I just fucking love it. I watched it again today. I always, <laughs> I could watch it twice in a day and forget how good it was. And Andre the Giant's great. I just looked, I was looking up the picture of the beer can that you mentioned, and there's also one of him sitting on a commercial airline where he's having to sit across two seats as well, which is fantastic. And there's one, apparently he once got so drunk, he collapsed in a hotel lobby and nobody could lift him because he's Andre the Giant. So they just set up red velvet ropes around him and left nice. him until he woke up. That's something to aspire to, isn't it? <laughs> 
Mm. Second film on my list, which is probably not necessarily the first thing you think of when you think I'm having a bad day and I want to watch a film to cheer me up, which is a movie set in World War II. It's not even the first film of his that I would spring to mind. No, fair, (laughs) fair point. However, there's good reason for it. And that film is last year's 2019's Jojo Rabbit. So Jojo Rabbit is sort of, it's set towards the end of the Second World War. It's set in Nazi Germany. It follows Jojo, who's 10, 11 years old. He's part of the Hitler Youth. He's clearly been indoctrinated into the ways of the Nazis, and particularly when it comes to his view of Jewish people, which is is quite important as the story develops. And also, obviously, has um, an imaginary friend who is Hitler, played by Taika Waititi who himself is Jewish. And he was questioned on this. I don't know, did you see what someone basically said? Well, you know, you're Jewish, you're half Jewish, half Maori. Why Why would you want to play Hitler? Oh, wasn't it just he's a cunt? No, he's a cunt was his response to like... Uh, uh, re- he, researching him. Yeah, he yeah, was like, yeah. I didn't do any research on him because he's a cunt. Yeah. He's, his reason for playing him was what better fuck you to the guy than a Jewish person playing him on, on screen. Yeah, fair. Yeah, as I say... Doesn't necessarily sound like the kind of start of a sort of feel good movie that you want to watch on a bad day. However, there is, and I think this is really down to how good a writer and director Taika Waititi is, but there is just so much positivity that comes out of the film, the growth of Jojo as a character, the way that Scarlett Johansson is as a mother in the film. She's not only raising a child during the war whilst her husband is is away, she's also sort of on the side fighting the good fight of trying to kind of denounce the Nazis. She's also hiding a Jewish girl, which who is Elsa, who is really pivotal to, to the story. And even though Jojo is not necessarily turning out to be the boy that she wants, she still does nothing but kind of love him and try to steer him in the right direction. And also even extends that love further to, to Elsa, who, who she's hiding. And as is interesting, Taika Waititi kind of noted that he he kind of sees this film as a bit of a, a love letter to his his own mother and also single parents in general, which I thought was kind of quite a nice touch from him. But the, as I said, like you're really showing that at the beginning, Jojo's bought into this like Nazi kind of way of thinking very against um, Jewish people, etc. And then he finds Elsa, who his mum's hiding. The story is really about the development of that relationship. There's so much in this in this film that is focused on like love triumphing over hate. I mean, there's also things with other characters as well that is a really kind of quiet. I don't know. There's a there's a bit in it that really stuck. I, I watched this again today, and similar to what you were saying about about the Princess Bride, I realised how much I love this film. It's definitely in my top three movies of all time. I think it's just I just I could watch it again and again. There's a bit in it where the Gestapo have raided the house and they're investigating them, but also so Sam Rockwell's in this one. I know we spoke about Sam Rockwell last week as well, but again... We'll, we'll just another. talk. We'll make a point of talking about them every week. <laughs> I think so. I mean, it's not like we would do that with anything else, kind of bring up the same thing every single week in a podcast. That would be, that'd be hey, lunacy. Right. But he plays, uh, he plays a, a Captain Klesendorf. He's also in the house when they're sort of uh, the Gestapo are raiding it and basically turns out that he was covering for her. I don't know. I think that plus sort of the, the full journey that Jojo goes on, it kind of feels like no matter how awful things are and 
people are and some beliefs that people hold are that perhaps they're not completely irreversible all of the time and maybe there is a bit of good in everyone in some shape or form and particularly right now <laughs> that's quite nice <laughs> to think <laughs> it's it's an interesting kind of there aren't many world war ii movies at least in english which focus on the german civilians no um and it also kind of raises the you know interesting ideas which again is <laughs> applicable to a lot of things now in that so Sam Rockwell's character is also gay. Yeah. Like obvious it's 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 hinted at more and more aggressively uh right up until um there's a scene where he's wearing a cape that has uh pink triangles on. Yeah. And pink- the the best hint at it is when He's with, so he's uh, with German, Alfie Allen's German character. Shepherds. Yeah, the German Shepherds bit. <laughs> yeah. And Alfie Allen brings in actual German Shepherds and he's like, no, you, you're yeah. meant to bring in dogs. And then he was like apologizing to him, saying, no, you did a really good job. And then they have this kind yeah. of extended stare at each other. <laughs> yeah. But he's still fighting for the Germans. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting the situations you kind of, people in that situation must have kind of got to. He's German and the country's physically under attack from people, but he doesn't believe in the, doesn't believe in the ideology over everything but no. then you look at he's also protecting there's kids and families involved and things like that it, it's it's very deep and i think one of the other things that it really explores in in a great way is youth in general and like in on one side how impressionable kids are but also how pure it can be as well and i think you know you see that quite early on when so jojo gets his nickname jojo rabbit because he refuses to kill a rabbit at this Hitler youth camp and that's kind of the first hint of like he is you know ultimately despite kind of wanting to be this perfect Hitler youth kind of kid he he is actually you know deep down he's he's quite an innocent kid and i think he also his his friendship with yorkie his 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 best friend in the film that's really quite pure as well yorkie is the best character that has ever <laughs> been shown in a movie he's hilarious he is the most innocent lord of the flies child i've ever seen (laughs) the entire world should be designed to protect him absolutely i mean there's the bit at the end where he's just like yeah i just i need to go home and give my mum a cuddle (laughs) (laughs) and it's just like yeah fair play i mean like yeah this is just it feels so so pure you have the whole kind of obviously jojo having his kind of first love and his first crush on elsa and then you know even has that great dance number at the end which is just so poignant because earlier on in the movie he his mum was telling him that you know he shouldn't be focusing on politics and stuff life should be filled with more dancing and he's like no i haven't got time for dancing you mentioned about the whole like not seeing a lot of stuff from the the German side in in war movies, and one thing I found quite pronounced at the end of it is like obviously the the Nazis have been defeated, and the Jewish people have, and you see the obviously the effect on on Elsa that she's now free. But there's also like a sense of liberation for the kind of everyday German that's been living through yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you know certainly you don't see a lot in British media at, at all. <laughs> well, it, it it shows how. Like you said, with kind of how this has gone weird, weird, uh, how, it, <laughs> how ideologies and systems like that do indoctrinate people. Yeah. Because you wouldn't look at Jojo and think, oh, you're a Nazi. Yeah. But they've got, he, he identifies as that. They've kind of 
got him from a young age. And of course, he's then going to grow up to be fucking Aryan super soldier. Yeah, it's, yeah, without a yeah. doubt. Yeah. So um, you were saying, so when you're having a bad day, you... <laughs> <laughs> you like to you like to ask yourself these questions. Yeah, I guess I guess on a bad day I get very introspective and philosophical. Yeah. But yeah, and then the last thing in this film is the quote that shows on the screen and oh. is probably one of my favorite quotes I've ever seen and it is directed by Taika Waititi. <laughs> it does it does say that afterwards, but that's not such a quote. It's let everything happen to you, beauty and terror, just keep going, no feeling is final. And that is uh, from a German poet Rilke who is Elsa's boyfriend's favourite poet in the film and also is I was reading into it a bit and it turns out that he was he genuinely kind of gave a lot of hope to countless young Germans during the war that there will eventually be a future and things won't always be this bad. And yeah, I think, you know, when you are having a bad day, seeing something like that and remembering something like that is kind of all that you need really. I, I could talk about Jojo Rabbit for hours it's it's so freaking good and there's just so much wholesomeness from a film that is where you probably wouldn't necessarily at least from a setting where you probably wouldn't necessarily expect it there are a couple of things that a film needs for me to want to watch it or recommend it to people to watch you know if they're having a bad day so a good kind of like redemption arc. So I, I think that's really kind of uplifting to watch is, you know, someone who's gone from a bad character then through kind of their journey has ended up realizing the error of their ways and has become a better person. So, so, the, so Jojo the, Rabbit. Yeah. So the, the Christmas Carol approach. <laughs> I was going to go for Christmas Carol, but we can go. No, we'll meet halfway and go Nazi Christmas Carol. <laughs> um, so a decent kind of, you know, redemption journey like that. Uh, films about friendship, I think, are kind of always kind of heartwarming as well. Be that, I don't know where I'm going to go with that sentence, I'll just stick with friendship. But yeah, um, whether that, yeah, whether that's a friendship growing or two people becoming friends, I think there's always something kind of very heartwarming to watch there. On a personal level, I really like fourth wall breaks. <laughs> I don't know why, but well, given that I picked Princess Bride for one of them, I clearly like meta stuff. Yeah. So I like when a film kind of, you know, breaks the fourth wall because you then also, it kind of draws you in a little bit more, which helps you kind of, you know, forget about the things that are going on. And then also Tom Jones and Llamas. So the only film that I could think of <laughs> to tick all of these boxes, because obviously I came up with the list first, is Emperor's New Groove, which I think is one of the most underrated Disney films ever made. So I only watched it probably about six months ago for the first time. I watch it every two months. <laughs> like I, because it's 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 like short. It's like a quick hour twenty. I think. Yeah. It oh, was Christ. the first. It was the it was first like twenty years old. Yeah. It was the first <laughs> thing I watched on uh, Disney Plus when we got Disney Plus, which is just Emperor's New Groove. I've watched nice. it three times, four times since then. It's just so fucking funny. So it was originally supposed to be called. Kingdom of the Sun, and it was going to be more of like a Prince and the Pauper kind of story. Yeah. And then it just entered like weird development hell. And I think the only people they maintained through the whole thing were Cusco, so the Emperor, uh, Yzma, so the Sorcerer, or Sorceress, and the fact Sting was involved. <laughs> um, so Sting, it was originally supposed to be a proper kind of old school 
sweeping epic Disney musical. And it ended up not being that at all. There's one song. It's sung by Tom Jones. There's other songs. There are songs kind of like Tarzan style where they're... And um, I think the, the biggest example of it is Toy Story 2, where there's a song written for it, but it's not sung by anyone. It's just playing over whatever is happening. So Toy right. Story 2, which is the opposite of this, was the really depressing when she left me thing. With this, I can't remember the song, but the first one, which is Tom Jones singing it, is so fucking funny. And it's not on Spotify. I check, again, every couple of weeks whether it's been added. But what I like about that is apparently Sting. So Sting wrote the song, but thought he was too old to sing it. So they got Tom <laughs> Jones in, who's 11 years older than Sting. Nice. Maybe he just wasn't Welsh enough. Maybe, maybe. Maybe that's why I like it. I also but, like the fact that Tom Jones's character was just called Theme Song Guy. Yep. <laughs> and he's he's referred by name as Theme Song Guy in the film yeah. as well. But it's up there with so people kind of acknowledge like Disney had like a down period, kind of after like the nineties where you had, you know, like Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King and Aladdin and you know, all of like those instant classic films coming out. They then seem to seem to have a bit of a lull, and that really pisses me off because there are some incredible films that came out in that period, which nobody acknowledges. So there's Emperor's New Groove, Treasure Planet, which I think is brilliant. So Treasure Planet, which I would also add to this list, but I haven't watched it recently because I keep getting told to stop talking about it whenever I mention it, is it's just Treasure Island in space. Like, sold. Yeah, They had Atlantis the Lost Empire which was steampunk Disney. Lilo and Stitch was around this time as well. I love Lilo um, and Stitch. That's a great film. Lilo and Stitch is brilliant, but I get slightly too depressed about it sometimes. To I don't know why. There's certain things. I'll add another list of, we'll have a top three list of films that Ian gets emotional at, but can't fully understand why and is also not ready to talk about. It'd be a very small episode. <laughs> oh, we could quickly go through that now if you like. So it's Lilo and Stitch. <laughs> uh, Lilo and Stitch, Inside Out, but a weird bit of inside out. So when she um when she's looking back on a memory that's sad and it becomes happy. Right. All like a child every time. And then Chef <laughs> would be on there as well from the the airplane story. So um <laughs> so yeah, Emperor's New Group is from it's a distinctly underrated film that came out during a distinctly underrated time in kind of like the Disney the Disney experience. And it's stupid. It is just unashamedly stupid. It's about an emperor who wants to knock down someone's house to build a swimming pool. He's also shit at his job. So his sorcerer um, wants to take control. So has her lackey, who's called Kronk, who's one of the funniest Disney characters, to poison him. And instead of... He loves cooking as well. So there's a through line from some previous choices. Instead of poisoning him, they accidentally turn him into a llama. And then he escapes and he runs into Poncho, Paco, Poncho, Pacho, John Goodman. Um, <laughs> another, another regular feature of the podcast, I think, moving forward, John Goodman. Uh, so John Goodman plays the person whose house he wants to knock down. They then team up to try and unlama the emperor. It's, you know, it's basically Alpacalypse now. That's funny. That's funny. Don't just shake your head. No one can see you shake your head. <laughs> I can again. I edit the podcast, so I can just I'll edit in a laugh from a previous episode. 
Um, so you're just going to get a laugh track. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's basically Alpacalypse now. <laughs> I've tried to steer away from films which are just funny. There's a lot of, you know, very funny films you'd obviously watch in a bad day. And Empress New Groove is very funny, but it's a very specific type of funny. It's it's just, yeah, it's just unashamedly stupid. It's really fun. It's really witty. It's very, it's very meta and self-referential. It's really quick. So you can just kind of fire it out and disappear into a stupid, like, borderline slapstick animated hour and 20 minutes it's john goodman it's it's just really funny i my my one big problem with it is you don't, um, you don't like llamas david spade <laughs> is, it, is it not not enough holocaust for you Graham? <laughs> it's david spade david yeah. spade is oh, i just find him so unlikable and his and his voice is very obviously david spade and it just kind of grates on me through throughout the film. It is a good film. It's it, you're right. It is underrated. But that's the one thing. It's just like if I'm having a bad day, the last person I want to listen to is David Spade. But it makes up for it with like I would listen to John Goodman read a thesaurus. <laughs> no, if he locked you in his bunker. Yeah. So you've also got Eartha Kitt is playing Isma. Patrick Warburton's is Kronk, and like it is full of like incredible talent. It, it made us kind of. Uh, we we're having a conversation about this I think, a couple of weeks ago. Um, obviously, they're remaking a load of Disney films, kind of live action. Uh, they've just announced Lilo and Stitch. Oh, nice! Uh, but it's going to be done by the person, the director of Crazy Rich Asians. Okay, which was a very like, it, to be fair, very underrated comedy film that came out. Um, I, was, I, I, I phrased that because I was about to say that came out last year, and then I suddenly realised I can't remember if it's last year or the year before. Um, but it made us think who you would cast in a live action version of Emperor's New Groove. Obviously, and, Jake the Llama. Uh, yeah, obviously, Jake the Llama. But we also mentioned Dave Batista. Nice. I, I, I just, there, there was something very funny about Dave Batista, which I just wanted to crowbar into a podcast episode. He's, he's such a good for, for someone who I thought was going to be like a one trick pony when he did Drax in Guardians. He's actually, he's been a lot of fun and everything I watched. He's really good in Stuba, it's, which is just a um, fun, ridiculous film. He has a very small part in the new Blade Runner. Oh, really? I don't remember that. He was the um, replicant they find at the beginning, the one on like the farm. Okay. Um, he wears very, very small glasses. Yes. No, I do remember. Yeah, and yeah, he yeah. actually gets to act. Because of his size, I think people don't appreciate just how much work he puts into the actual acting side of things. Yeah, I think there's also obviously the whole like, you know, a lot of like, there's a stigma attached to wrestlers that have gone into to acting as well, I think. Without with, without having researched it, because this is one of those conversations where you forget people. So like, uh, there's also a stigma attached to sports stars who become actors. Yeah. Um, but I always forget Carl Weathers used to play in the NFL. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I want to say Dave Bautista's easy top three for me, but I'm also acknowledging that I probably am forgetting a shitload of people who kind of crossed the divide. To, to get back onto Emperor's New Groove via Bautista, the reason I picked it, like I said, it's just a very funny film. It's got Tom Jones in. It's easy to watch. It makes you laugh. The whole friendship aspect of it, I think, is always kind of 
very heartwarming and uplifting to see. And did I mention that Tom Jones is it? To be fair, he appeared. He did appear in a lot, like quite a few films in the late nineties. Um, basically, I'm saying it's not unusual to have Tom Jones appear in a film. Oh, why, why, why? <laughs> Anyway, so my last film to watch on a bad day, um, again, is another another film that's really quite uplifting. I think more than anything, it just really kind of encapsulates the idea of really just fucking backing yourself and being yourself regardless of what other people think, what the expectations there are on how you should act. And also sort of how incredible it is to be backed up in doing this by the people who are around you, support you and who love you. And that film is Little Miss Sunshine. Little Miss Sunshine came out back in 2006. It's got a a great cast. You've got Tony Collette. um, You've got um, Steve Carell. Before Steve, Steve Carell was cast in this before he was a big name actor. It's a cast full of people that I can describe as Shit, I forgot they were in this film. Yeah, exactly. You got, yeah, Greg Kinnear is in it. Yeah. But um The Riddler. <laughs> yeah, Steve Carell was cast in this before he'd done The Office. He was cast in oh, this before what was he'd he? Yeah, so The Office came out before this yeah. was released, but um it actually took five years to film this, like from, oh, from fuck. Start to finish. I, I, I always I always assumed it was um because he was in the office. No, so they and they were kind of reluctant to cast him initially because he hadn't really got any credits. But then between casting it and this coming out, he did The Office and Forty Year Old Virgin, which was one of the highest grossing movies of the year it came out. So the fact that he was then on the cast for Little Miss Sunshine obviously was a was a really good kind of boost for them. And not just that, but <laughs> against type, which is an even bigger kind of draw for someone. Yeah, a- absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it follows this. You know, they're <laughs> definitely. I'd probably describe them as quite a misfit family, and they basically travel across the country in a bright yellow VW camper van so that the daughter, a girl called Olive, can take part in the Little Miss Sunshine pageant out in California, which are creepy as hell. Oh, with, yeah, with pageants are just awful, and yeah. So I guess they're, they're misfits in the sense that you've. You've got the son who's taken a vow of silence, which he will only break when um, he realizes his dream of becoming a pilot. You've got the grandfather who's been evicted from his nursing home for snorting heroin. And then you've got the dad, played by Greg Kinnear, who's basically trying to become like a motivational speaker. There, for various reasons, they figure out that if, if Olive is going to go and be in this pageant, Everyone needs to go because they can't leave certain people at home for various reasons. As mentioned, like the grandfather being evicted from his nursing home because of his drug problem, etc. Like the journey itself is is fraught with a lot of setbacks and it really kind of I guess shows the power of how people can work together, work through their differences, um, and just how that kind of level of support can really kind of get you through anything. One of the less funny setbacks is that the grandfather dies of a heroin overdose and they have to sneak him out of the hospital morgue in a rug. I say less funny, that's kind of funny. It's very, very, very faulty towers. <laughs> minus, I don't think there was heroin in faulty towers, but uh, it was a kipper. Yeah, yeah. yeah, to be fair, Basil, Basil was probably on the coke. He was very yeah. highly strung. Yeah, a very fine line between 
heroin and kipper abuse. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, obviously, this all kind of culminates together in the pageant. Um, So they they get to California. uh, They go to the Little Miss Sunshine pageant. Olive, the, the young girl in the film, she's not your typical pageant star. You see her kind of lined up with all the other girls. She's not as slim as all of them she's not as polished with all of like her routines that she's been practicing and she's certainly not dressed the way they are which actually i think is probably a good thing because as you mentioned they are creepy as fuck there's this whole i'm glad it's not a part of american culture that's ever made its way over to the uk at least that i know of but it's so fucking like the over sexualization of kids is just so fucking weird and I, I i just don't understand it at all but as i say the way the the olive is is she's so far apart from what all of these other pageant girls are like and it becomes pretty apparent that she's not gonna win this she's not gonna kind of have success against the typical pageant girls and there's definitely this like realization of that with her family that okay, this is going to be humiliating for her and they sort of try and talk her out of it. But her mum, who's mentioned, played by Tony Collette, um, she's like, nope, Olive is going to take part. We've come all this way. We're going to let Olive be Olive and she's going to go out and she's going to do her own thing. Turns out her own thing is a very inappropriate burlesque dance that was taught to her by her now dead grandfather to the song Super Freak, (laughs) (laughs) which is, um, is hilarious. It's quite an interesting kind of commentary on the morals of the pageant crowd because this kind of really outrages the audience and the judges because of the what they're doing and but obviously there's this whole like the morality of pageants in general they're okay with but this is seen as a step too far yeah it completely outrages the audience the judges and they're kind of calling for Olive to be removed, to be pulled off stage. And then the bit in this film that is just like, just kind of cements the the support and how it's just the, I guess it's just such a feel good moment, which is also hilarious as well, is the family just one by one kind of start joining in with her on the stage. Uh, they're not kind of going to let her be tarnished. They're going to, she's going to enjoy her moment and they're going to support her. I mean, safe to say, she doesn't win. Um, there's not like a, a happy ending. Well, there is, but there isn't for in terms of the contest. Um, in fact, she she ends up being banned from ever participating in pageants in California <laughs> again. But I think that's it. the message here and the important thing about this film is not winning at something like this. It is just the power of being yourself and true to yourself, regardless of what the sort of societal expectations are. And... I think it really hones in on the fact that if you've got the support and the love to kind of be pushed to be able to do that is priceless. And regardless of who that comes from, right? Did they she is without a doubt from a family of absolute misfits and and fuck-ups, but they're still there for her regardless and I think that's that's just yeah, it's really really wholesome. I just think there's something very funny about a failed motivational speaker. <laughs> 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 that speaks to me on a deep level. That's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those. Yeah, I. It's such a great film. I think similar to kind of Chef, it's very difficult to 
lay down and categorize exactly what it is but yeah it's one of those films i i watch scenes from it regularly that'll kind of pop up on youtube or something when he breaks his vow of silence yeah like it's borderline heartbreaking but it's also deeply hilarious (laughs) so (laughs) and that's what that's what i like (laughs) yeah and i don't know i think i think that's it right there's you just go through so much from this but the i think the overwhelming message is just so so positive and it's just yeah it's funny it's a lot of fun i need to watch it again it's it's not streaming anywhere that i've seen at the moment and i have got it on dvd somewhere but god knows where all my dvds are but yeah it's 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 great and i think it's got to be up there i mean it's it kind of is consistently on these kind of lists of of feel good films and stuff and even even more impressively it was like the the writer i can't remember if it's writer director the the same person but it was the first screenplay that this guy had written and yeah good choice i'm having a bad day this is this is going in the uh the dvd player when i find the dvd find the dvd player but don't snort heroin don't snort heroin because you'll get you'll you'll get kicked out of your retirement yeah exactly and if john travolta is not around to take you to uh his drug dealer's house then you know you're kind of hey, Pulp Fiction reference. <laughs> uh, like I said, try to pick films that have, you know, tick certain boxes that would improve a day for me. And this one is a very simple box that for a long time I was waiting to get filled. <laughs> um, yeah, and for me, that I couldn't find a film that scratched this itch for me. And that is obviously the tick box of David Bowie kidnaps a baby. <laughs> and then I was put on to Labyrinth. The 19- to be fair, David Bowie is asked to kidnap a baby. Yeah, we'll get on to that. <laughs> so, so Labyrinth is one of my favourite films. I'm absolutely obsessed with... So it's directed by Jim Henson. So if you don't know Jim Henson, he's the guy who came up with The Muppets... He did a lot with Sesame Street, Fraggle Rock, and the Dark Crystal, and the Dark Crystal series that came out recently is kind of obviously based on a lot of his work. Didn't his son do that? Yeah, so Brian Henson took over kind of the Jim Henson company. There's something about the worlds that he creates purely with puppetry that is just beautiful. So the Dark Crystal TV series, which again is kind of a Jim Henson production, was so like awe-inspiring awe-inspiringly beautiful and creative and like every so there isn't a live person in dark crystal it's all puppetry everywhere and it was so over the top creative that i literally nearly had a nervous breakdown (laughs) like it was so beautiful that i started questioning everything i'd done and the decisions i'd made up until now and whether this is something that i should have been doing like I haven't had that visceral reaction to something possibly ever, and I had it to puppets on Netflix. But, Is that why ever since you've been walking around with that sock on your hand? Yeah, yeah. He's called David, and you're going to respect him. <laughs> so Labyrinth was kind of an early, well, not early. So it was, it was 1986. So Jim Henson directed it. Do you know who did the screenplay? Yes, uh, Terry Jones. Yeah. So based on a screenplay from Terry Jones, which was written based on. So before he did the screenplay, the conceptual artist is a guy called Brian, I think it's Froud, who drew a load of like stacks upon stacks, like notebooks upon notebooks of pictures of goblins. Nice. And apparently Terry Jones was writing the script and would just look at these characters. And as soon as he looked at them, they would like jump out of the 
the page at him and just make sense. How did he do that? Because he's Puppets. Monty Python. I think that's just the way he sees the world. Yeah. Everyone, <laughs> it's <laughs> Terry. Terry Gilliam's actually really boring. He just animates the way everyone else sees the world. <laughs> but it was also so like the creative team behind it. So you had one of Monty Python, who are one of the most kind of you know surreal, creative minds out there. The executive producer was George Lucas, who yeah, so Lucas Film produced it, right? I'm, I'm not sure if it was Lucas Film or if it was just George Lucas, but he was heavily involved. From uh, so there's great documentary on YouTube called Inside the Labyrinth, which shows a lot of behind the scenes stuff, and you just kind of see him hanging around occasionally pointing at things but he was also rightly so he gets a lot of stick for fucking up star wars but we also have to remember he came up with star wars like the entire mythology and everything came like he is and indiana jones was his kind of idea as well like as a storyteller and as a story mind he's actually very very good so the creative kind of team behind all of this was insane. And then it stars a very young Jennifer Connelly who gives like an incredible performance as the She's lead. such a dick though. Yeah, uh, uh, in the film. In the film, yeah. In the yeah. film. So it basically follows this girl played by Jennifer Connelly whose parents go out for the evening and they ask her to babysit her brother when they're going out, you know, partying or raving or something. Um, and they do look like the raving type. Yeah, either. one thing leads to another, as it often does. And she wishes that the Goblin King would come and take the baby, and the Goblin King does. And then suddenly she's the victim, and she has to go into the labyrinth to find and rescue her brother from Jareth, King of the Goblins, paid by the ever incredible David Bowie in a very David Bowie performance, which I think is a description of a lot of what he's given cinema. <laughs> it Lots of singing and his codpiece. genitals yeah. very, yeah. So very, very uh, prominent very throughout prominent the film. Codpiece, which really, it's the reason I rewatch this all the time. But um, <laughs> he, uh, not, not to go kind of too much into the David Bowie side of things, but there's a song in this called Magic Dance, which is arguably one of the best songs ever written, but we will, we will come to that another day, I'm sure. Do you know that he also is the... Um, I know what you... Yeah, the guy on the mirror. So in... Oh, no, that's not what I, I thought you were going to say. So I, I, what oh. I do know is the noise of the baby in Magic Dance is David Bowie putting on oh, a baby voice. no. <laughs> <laughs> didn't know that. That's fantastic. So there's a picture in Sarah's room where uh, on the mirror, which is, I think, because oh yeah, I, I I think there's a lot of stuff in her room which relates to the story. Um, so I think yeah, that, yeah there's a photo of Jareth in the room somewhere, right? Yeah, and I think yeah. it's meant to be like because her her it's the stepmother is so it's not her actual mum that yeah. she's babysitting for. It's her stepmother and her dad. And I think David Bowie is played is meant to be the character who her real mum kind of went off with. So like he's kind of the bad guy in the in the labyrinth, but he's also yeah. sort of the bad guy in her, her life. I, I as didn't well. know that. No, that's very interesting. But yeah, so it, it's it's a very fantastical story. <laughs> it involves um, you know there's goblins, there's ghouls, there's weird like red cat things that can take their heads off. There's talking doors. There's helping hands, which are literally puppets, which are just three sets of hands that kind of make a face and talk. Because that's it's so good. Because it's there's so the cleverly done variations of faces yeah. that they make with with a few they, hands is is great. So they cover that in the documentary of ha- like them 
playing around and coming up with it. The, the, the whole world is... So in the Magic Dance video, there's 48 puppets with over 50 puppeteers and David Bowie and this baby. So every frame of the film feels like it's alive, even though mm-hmm. 90% of what on script what is on screen is a puppet or a model or an animatronic. So these worlds that have been created are so kind of detailed and in-depth that for me, the reason films like this and especially Labyrinth which I have regularly watched on. So if I am having a bad day, I will watch Labyrinth. Like this is my choice for my go-to. And the main reason, it, so it is a very funny film. It is, you know, it is about the growth of a family and things like that, but it is the sheer escapism of everything. It completely takes you out of the world and puts you somewhere else. And if it's going to put you somewhere else, I would want to be put in a world that's designed by Jim Henson and Terry Jones. Yeah, and where a big, like, I don't even know what Ludo actually is, but whatever he is, I want to be friends with him. Dog bear monster? (laughs) And then Didymus, and like, it's just, it's such a magical film. And uh, like, I think calling something magical usually feels like a cop-out, but it is the only way to describe not only this, but like a lot of what Jim Henson has kind of contributed. He's one of those people where even though he's critically acclaimed, I still feel like it's underrated what he's done. Yeah. So so for me, the reason this is just, if you're having a bad day, a way to escape from the bad day is entering. Uh, I'm going to say it, Graham. It's about, you know, a way to escape a bad day is entering the labyrinth. <laughs> but it is, it is just such a magical and like beautifully designed alive world that isn't like anything else you would have seen. I would have put a lot of other kind of Jim Henson things on this list as well. Like e- even the films he wasn't directly involved in. So the films he was directly involved in, so things like The Dark Crystal, a complete other, there's no people in it. It is just puppetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very kind of dark fantasy as well. It's an incredible story, but it hasn't aged quite as well as Baby Stealing Bowie. Um, It hasn't (laughs) aged quite as well as kind of Labyrinth has. Um, He was also heavily involved in a lot of kind of the early kind of Muppets movies. I was contemplating doing the latest Muppets movies as well. And there's, oh, there's just the Muppets yeah. is so good. But it's there's something about Jim Henson and the worlds he creates. Like like I said, one of the series is based on what he's done. Nearly drove me to reassess everything I was doing with my life, which is weird. He also had one of I know obviously it wasn't him, but based on characters and stuff he created, had one of the best responses to all of the civil unrest and stuff we've had in the US this year with the the Elmo short on Sesame Street explaining racism. And it was just so, so well done and such a like obviously difficult subject to tackle for kids. Yeah, it's kind of was was made possible because of this world and these characters that that he and his his company created. Yeah, it's what what I'm looking forward to is so a Jim Henson production or what they're in, involved in is Guillermo del Toro's stop motion Pinocchio film that's coming out next year. Interesting. Which is going to be fucked. I was going to say, like, it there's sounds no like other it way. Be. Like, a Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio film is going to be weird anyway. Ron Perlman is obviously in it. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's Jim Henson's I mean, just incredible. David Bowie's incredible. The Labyrinth is incredible. I'm going to watch this tomorrow. The soundtrack's brilliant. 
The creature design is brilliant. There's a job. Uh, someone on set's job was goblin armor designer, which, nice. you know, I'd happily take that career. Yeah, it's just magical. And I think that's kind of what you need on a shit day. Yeah. I mean, I, I it's great. Love most things that David Bowie's done. An excuse to watch him in a fantasy epic is is always good. I did. I recently I watched this again last week. Um when we were first discussing these. The only thing that kind of stuck out to me is that there's, as I say, there's a few bits that make it look very 80s. Like, and it's the bits that aren't using the puppets because the puppet, and it, it, this goes back to, I guess, mm. what we talk about with like some of the, the, the visual effects versus special effects stuff. The bits where it tries to do the special effects. Are, are, you, are you talking about the owl, Graham? <laughs> Definitely talking about so the owl. <laughs> there, is, there is a very, very bad CGI owl labyrinth which is is kind of unforgivable it hasn't aged very well but that was actually the first ever cgi photorealistic animal in cinema yeah 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 you can and tell it, yeah you can tell <laughs> but yeah and there's a few bits like with the inside the weird balls that he's playing with well, one of the one of the balls again like with, with practical versus computer effects so yeah. It's obviously not David Bowie doing this. Sounds st- if you haven't seen it, you, this is going to sound like I'm being stupid. But it's like one-handed juggling. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. yeah, so he's doing he's doing the single-handed juggling, and it's basically they've got this juggler to stand behind David Bowie and act as his right arm. Yeah, it's so kind of the only way for him to do it was to press his head up against David Bowie's back, <laughs> so he can't see what he's doing. Yeah, and then he's just doing this fancy hand <laughs> trick stuff. And it, it, it really works. But again, in this kind of into lab, I'll link this documentary in kind of the episode notes. Into the Labyrinth shows him doing it and it is just so weird. Like, can you imagine that guy who for like a good hour had to just stand pressed up against David Bowie? And obviously it's really, that's it's a difficult skill to do anyway. And your muscle memory must be off with it if you're hunched over and pressed up against a rock icon. Yeah, and it was, and it was weird because it was... Um, so where they were standing, um, you would think there'd be plenty of room, but it was it was actually a lot smaller than it looked. It was something of a space oddity. <laughs> Out of my choices, then, mm. my top three would be Labyrinth and Easy One, just because I regularly resort to lab resort i regularly go to labyrinth when i'm having bad days and just because of the sheer escapism of everything i think it can improve kind of any bad day number two for me would probably be princess bride just because i think kind of it is a very funny film uh it's very kind of inherent in fairy tales that it takes you out of what you're doing as well and what ruins a lot of stories like that i think is them taking themselves too seriously Mm-hmm. And Princess Bride doesn't do that at all. And then number three for me would be Emperor's New Groove because it's the only one left. But also, it's a fucking amazing film that features Tom uh, Jones and a llama. So you haven't mentioned, yeah, Tom Jones llama. Okay. <laughs> it is, it, yeah, it's a very underrated film. It's very funny. It's very quick, and yeah, it's great. Nice. So I think with mine, oh, it's a tough one. But I think I'll go. I think top would be. Chef, Chef is just uh, similar to what you mentioned with with Labyrinth. Is like it is definitely one that I'll I'll either put Chef on or I'll binge watch all of the Chef show stuff that came as a as a result of it. Oh, well, Chef. Um, to, to, to be fair, similar to 
Labyrinth of the Dark Crystal, Chef very nearly made me consider reconsider what I was doing with my life. <laughs> because it's just, it's just something about seeing people passionate about things, right? Yeah, I think it's, yeah. it's yeah, and just going with something that you enjoy. And I think a lot of people can relate to, like, maybe not necessarily doing the, the job that they maybe thought they were going to do. So that's number one. Number two for me, Jojo Rabbit. And he's only slightly pushed down to second place because there are some bits in it that are kind of pull on the heartstrings for other reasons. We'll be coming um, on to that in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> but it is full of so much positivity in such a bleak time um, in history. And just the real triumph of, of love over hate just really sticks out. And when things are at their darkest... To be able to have that hope, I think, is just a really important thing on on a on a shitty day. And then last place, but still, you know, still think it's a great thing to put on if you're having a bad day as Little Miss Sunshine. And again, being true to yourself, doing you doing you and just having the people around you support you doing you is, yeah, I mean, you, you can't get much better a, a motivation um, yeah. than that. So... Yeah, that's that's my running order. Cool. Okay. So what we're going to do now, and stop me if you disagree. So I'm going to give a five second countdown, and then we're going to talk about Jojo Rabbit spoilers for about a minute. So if you haven't seen <laughs> Jojo Rabbit, please either stop listening to this podcast or forward by about a minute. Okay. We good? Right. So five or seriously don't listen if you haven't seen the film three two one jojo rabbit's mum dies <laughs> she does and when i saw it in the cinema there were gasps tears gasps again tears and then more tears and that was just from me and my friend but <laughs> it completely it's so beautifully done but it's a the way it's done is a proper gut punch as well, because I didn't see it coming. No, I, I, I didn't either. Yeah, I thought something was going to happen, but not that. And I don't know if I could recommend that to someone having a bad day. But I think every, this- every, everything else you said, I 100% agree with that the, you know, the, the messages it says about the world and everything. But yeah. Yeah, but it also goes from, you know, even from that, you know, even from how this kid going through what is extremely distressing and dark, he not only comes out the other side of it, but in a way that he's carrying on everything that she stood for, even though when she was around, he was not necessarily singing from the same hymn book, as it were. Yeah, fair. I mean, I would recommend... Carrying on her legacy. Yeah. I would recommend it... um, uh, Welcome back. We're not going to talk specifically about that spoiler anymore. (laughs) I could recommend it I think it is a very, very important film that everybody should watch. I don't know whether I would tell them to watch it if they're having a bad day. I think there are better Taika Waititi films to watch when you're having a shit time than the sheer depths of... Even without mentioning the spoiler subject, um, when I'm sitting there, oh, you know, you, what, what's going to cheer me up today? Uh, I know, a detailed look at how the Nazi regime impacted children and civilians during the time of the Holocaust. That sounds great. Yeah, but again, you're 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 talking about the, and, the backdrop of the movie. Yeah, which you know, undeniably, it is, and that's when it's set. But the fact that through all of that and through the 
the shitness of the world. And I, as I mentioned, I think there's there's even it's even comparable to some of the stuff now that like how negative and how there's a lot of people that hold a lot of quite fucked up beliefs but there is hope in this movie that those beliefs aren't necessarily irreversible and that within a lot of people there is still some good in there and if we can find it great things can happen you know and it, it as I said, the very last thing you see in this film, that quote, is one of the most important things I think you could see on a bad day. Then just to... just show them the quote and tell them to watch Hunt for the Wilder People. <laughs> Hunt for the Wilder People is great, but, I mean, also... But, but also Jojo Rabbit, it doesn't have a six-fingered man. It doesn't have Andre the Giant. There's no rodents of unusual size. You know, it doesn't... It doesn't. Jojo Rabbit is a good reflection on Trump's America, Brexit Britain, and all that kind of shit. Um, I don't want to think about that. And I'm having a bad day. I want to think about true love and Inigo Montoya. Yeah, but as I say, it's you know it's relatable. It's it's showing you, it's showing you that despite all of that shit, there is good in the world, and I think that's important. I mean, for me at least, you know, I I get the the value of escapism, but also there is a degree of like when you come out of that escapism, you're not you know <laughs> there aren't princesses and pirates. Whereas you can relate back to the shittiness of the world, but there being hope that there is good people and good things can happen. And to me, that carries further than the kind of, yeah, the escape of, um, of some fantasy. Andre the Giant is really tall. I don't, th- I don't, I don't think you've talked about that enough. So Andre the Giant's seven foot four, Graham. Um, I, I, I get your point. So, so what are we saying for kind of one in two? Because I, I, I feel like we have already unspokenly decided this is against Princess Bride and Jojo Rabbit for three. I think the top two are a chef and labyrinth, right? Yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> it's genuinely a coin toss between which one is top of the two. I think they're both worthy of the top spot. Probably give it to Labyrinth because of David Bowie. <laughs> no, I, th- I think that's fair. I think that's fair. But so, also, la- chef is just... So, it's so good. Yeah. So Labyrinth Chef will eat a sandwich. <laughs> so kind of one one of the reasons I picked mine, like it's, I, I think for, well, it's such a different kind of definition of kind of feel good and improving a bad day, I guess. Cause, cause the way I always approach it is I could watch all of my films multiple times over a weekend. I couldn't do that with Jojo Rabbit. And I think I'm holding that against it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's not a, I definitely left Jojo Rabbit with a weird sense of warmth and maybe everything's going to be okay. That could be because it ends with a David Bowie song. (laughs) I wasn't going to mention it, but that, yeah, that whole dance number and the, yeah. Yeah. The Bowie sandwich of Bowie one, Bowie three, (laughs) and the chef two. Because you got the Samuel L. Jackson caveat in the president's one, I want to put this to you. Okay. Jojo Rabbit three. Yeah, but people should watch the sword fight from Princess Bride. Okay, I'm absolutely because fine with that. The, the sword fight in Princess Bride, I think, is the perfect encapsulation of what the film is. That it's ex- it's exciting without it's a parody without taking the piss. It's self-referential while also just being very good at what it's doing. It's also, I think, one of the best fight scenes, like actual sword fight scenes I've seen. It's also so it- very funny. 
It highlights everything you'd want to know about the characters. And it just makes you feel happy. So you're basically saying that the sword fight in The Princess Bride is the cabin in the woods of fight scenes. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, okay. All right. So our final top three then of films that would improve a bad day. So number one is Labyrinth. And David Bowie's codpiece. And David Bowie's... Fuck it. Number one, David Bowie's codpiece. <laughs> Number two is Chef, or Sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> Number three is Jojo Rabbit. And you should also watch the fight scene from The Princess Bride. Absolutely. So I would strongly encourage, given we're all still stuck inside, that you go out and watch these films. I think they're all... Even the ones that didn't make our top three, I think they're all kind of very, very good. So let us know kind of whether you agree, what your choices are when you need to improve a bad day. You can reach us on Instagram at the podcast nobody asked for. And you can tweet us at nobody asked for pod, the number four. And also rate us on Apple Podcast because ratings help with algorithms and stuff. And also, if anyone's having a shit day, feel free to message out on any of those. Yes. Life's weird right now, and the least we can do is be there for other people. Absolutely. And yeah, watch all of... Actually, first of all, don't watch one of these six films. Watch your film that you need to watch on a bad day, because I think one of the other things with this is it is... It can be quite personal, because someone might just want to watch something that no one else thinks is any good, but is just their happy place. Go do that first, enjoy it, and then if you need another one, watch one of these six because they will also make you smile and and if you need any David Bowie or Tom Jones Spotify playlists <laughs> just let us know <laughs> but yeah no that was a that was a good one and we'll see you next yeah. Thursday You're all warm and fuzzy inside no. Ugh, no one asked for this